Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. What happened to you that led to you going to, to prison? My mom had passed. I am recklessly endangering my own life with copious amounts of heroin. And all of a sudden, I just have all this money, which means I have unlimited quantities of heroin. Once I had, you know, infinite amounts of heroin, all my problems would go away. And I had it, and all of my problems remained. By the age of 21, Morgan Godvin was addicted to heroin. When she was 24, her mother died of a prescription drug overdose. That one of my best friends in the world texted me, and he asked me for a gram of heroin. We're told that if you have a felony, your life is over, and it's not true. It's harder, it's trickier, and you are going to spend the rest of your life fighting. But many of these obstacles are surmountable. But then he has to deliver it. That should have been a red flag for me. Uh, and a few hours later, my front door burst open and the SWAT team rushed in with rifles pointed at me, screaming at me. And they put me in handcuffs and told me that I was being arrested for the overdose death of Justin DeLong, my best friend in the world. Hello and welcome to Second Chance Podcast. I'm Raphael Rowe, your host. This podcast series explores the theme of second chance. We raise questions about who deserves a second chance, who decides who gets a second chance, and what a second chance actually means. We speak to people from all walks of life about their experiences, including those who have been given a second chance, and some who you might believe are beyond deserving a second chance. Before I introduce my guest today, I want you to ask you to support the Raphael Rowe Foundation. The mission of the foundation is to end the humanisation of people in prison and build safer societies. We work with those who administer prison systems throughout the world and inspire them to abolish dehumanising, degrading and dangerous practices, putting more emphasis on the health, education and rehabilitation of those in their care. In many prisons across the world, basic human rights are not being met and systems are collapsing, causing overcrowding, 
rising violence, suicides and drug issues, making it difficult to rehabilitate inmates and reintegration back into society. I know this because if any of you have watched my Netflix series Inside the World's Toughest Prisons, you would have seen what I'm talking about. If you want to help, please visit the website at www.rafaelrofoundation.org and register your support for the work we're doing. And if you can afford to make a donation to help our mission, please click on the donate link on the website, which will take you to our GoFundMe campaign. Thank you. Morgan Godvin was addicted to heroin from a young age. To support her habit, she sold drugs. The sale of heroin to one of her best friends led to his death and her being imprisoned in the USA for five years. She has been a consumer of harm reduction, treatment and recovery services throughout the state. Her activism and advocacy now centre around reducing the harms associated with drug use, preventing overdose death and improving access to higher education in prisons. Her mother died of a prescription drug overdose and she has lost many close friends to overdose. Merging lived experience with academic education and governmental action, she is now an alcohol and Drug Policy Commission advisor. Let me start by just asking you a little bit about, because I would describe you as an activist who's been on quite a journey, but I, I saw on your website you described yourself as a, an addict turned advocate. But before we get into the details of why you ended up in prison and, and the work that you're doing today, which, which shapes the person you are, Morgan. Let's go back to where you come from, where you are in the world right now and where you grew up. Yeah, I grew up in Portland, Oregon, poorer suburb called Gresham. And I had a pretty unusual childhood just because my, my parents were lesbians and my mom was in the military. And so I grew up sort of a military brat um, in a queer household, which was pretty uncommon at the time. And I ended up dropping out of high school right around my 16th birthday. I had like a very squarely middle-class life right until when I turned 16. Um, my mom had a gambling problem and was caught embezzling and was terminated. And so overnight, we went from middle-class to nothing to eat. And I think that really profoundly shaped my trajectory because I was at least old enough to be able to fend for myself for some degree. And so I was able to, you know, I just dropped out of school and I started working full-time um, and I, I had at least built up the life skills and the coping mechanisms to that point to survive that very challenging period. But what did you do up until the age of 16 then? Was it just normal going to school, not misbehaving, yeah. not getting in any trouble? You, you know. <laughs> That's exactly right. I was, I was a big nerd, uh, too smart for my own good. I, was, I excelled in academics. I never played sports a day in my life. I was too clumsy. It was just me and my desktop computer, you know, and the internet and that was about it. So I'd never got in trouble, not a day in my life. So what was it that happened that, that at 16, because of a, an act that your mum committed, that, 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 that impacted you so much that it, it turned you on a different trajectory? Or, or was it not the impact of what your mum did? It was a combination of a number of things. Oh, it was a number of things. Yeah, I'd always struggled with mental health issues. I had my first suicide attempt when I was 11. No way. Mm-hmm. And... Um, just, I just remember just never wanting to exist, never wanting to exist. I didn't do well socially um, at all. 
until I found the sort of drug counterculture subculture, the stoner crowd, and they just accepted me for who I was, even though I didn't really smoke weed. And at the same time, what's happening in my household is I'm losing all sort of parental guidance and financial support, and the house is getting foreclosed on. So I'm sinking into the stoner subculture at the same time that my home life is falling apart around me. When you say you attempted to take your own life at 11 years old, and we hear and read stories all the time of young teenagers attempting suicide, harming themselves, I I often wonder where the parents are at this point. You know, what is it that that child was doing that the parents didn't see? I mean, what is it you think that parents don't see that could help a child at such a young age who is so vulnerable and acting out in this way? Yeah, you know, I I hit it. But had my parents had more time to pay attention, had they had not had so much chaos in their own lives, there were plenty of red flags about my depression. The fact that I didn't have any friends, that I never left the house, that I never wanted to go anywhere. You know, they would they could say let's go to Disneyland and I would throw a fit and say no because I wanted to stay home. These were all huge red flags for severe depression that were simply overlooked. But it's not like I was exactly crying out for attention. So I hid this from everyone. No one knew that that had happened. Were you an only child? Uh, Yeah, I was an only child. And then when I was 10, uh, we adopted my cousin who had been put into foster care. So at the age of 16, so between the age of 11 and 16, had you sort of got back in control of your own life? What led to you attempting to take your life at such a young age? In the next five years, were you able to sort of manage the depression and the issues that you were going through? Yeah, I learned to live with it. It never went away. But that sort of voice in my head that sometimes says, kill yourself, I learned to combat that and to live with it. And I was able to get a a handle on my own depression, though I still struggled profoundly with mental health. I just always felt this hollow pain in my chest. Who who was there? So you say your parents weren't giving you enough attention at this time and they didn't see the flags. Who was there? Was there anybody there, whether it was a social worker, whether it was a, a, a medical support? Was there a you smile as if, no, nope, they didn't exist? I live in the United States of America. <laughs> okay. um, there was nothing available. I think of this sometimes. I forget. I was looking through a yearbook and, you know, by my sophomore year of high school, my second year of high school, I was attending school maybe two days per week. And that didn't trigger any sort of intervention. I was 15 years old and that didn't trigger an intervention or maybe it was my junior year, but by the beginning of my senior year, I dropped out. I was 17 years old. I withdrew from school. And again, this triggers no intervention, not even any questions like, Hey, what's going on at home? (laughs) You know, I went from a straight A student excelling in academics to showing up very sporadically and then suddenly withdrawing from high school. But there was, there was no one there to ask questions or offer support. So were you on your own, literally? I mean, you've withdrawn from school. It's affecting your academics, no doubt, and your home life was disrupted. Were you on your own? Yeah, I moved out when I was 17, right around that time. What, what led to you moving out from your home then? Well, by that point, my parents had separated, and I stayed with my mom, and she was devastated by that separation and gambling a lot and also taking prescription pain medication and drinking. And it was just a very chaotic, our relationship had become very chaotic 
and there wasn't really parental guidance there at that time anyway. So I just chose to get my own apartment with my boyfriend and a few friends. And how did this manifest itself into you turning to drugs? <laughs> that apartment we, <laughs> we, we rented was raided by the police within like six months. Drugs work. I think that's the thing that people overlook the most in the conversation about substances. Millions of people across the world wouldn't use them unless they did serve some purpose in that moment. In the beginning, the benefits might outweigh the consequences, but that calculus quickly tips, right? And the consequences are greater than the benefits those drugs are giving you. But by that point, it has shifted into addiction and you now have compulsive use. So in the beginning, it was very fun. For once, I didn't have that voice in my head that said, kill yourself, especially when I first tried opioids. When I did that first OxyContin 80 milligram, I thought I had found everything I had been missing my entire life. It filled the void. So what drug did you start off? Was it puff, pot, weed? Is that the common starting point for you? Yeah, but I was, I, I've always had severe anxiety, so I was never much of a weed smoker because of my anxiety. So the first time I started to dip my toes into problematic use would have been ecstasy, MDMA, and cocaine. Right, so quite a, an array of different drugs. And given that you were uh, you know, acad- academically driven up until a certain point where things weren't working at, at home, what was it that turned you to the drugs? Was it to overcome that anxiety? Was it to overcome the person you were, Morgan, to become the person you could become on drugs? You know, it wasn't ever that thought out, but mostly it was a social thing. I had felt so awkward and so alone. And then I found this group of friends who accepted me for who I was. And what that group did was drugs. And that made them very non-judgmental in a sincere way. And also just that is what the drug subculture is. So it's not like I went seeking drugs. I went seeking connection and comfort and being comfortable in my own skin. And how I found that, unfortunately, was through drugs. But you were able to, as a, a young adolescent, able to manage your drug use around the company that you were with, or was it becoming a problem even at that young age? No, I was able to manage it for many years. And that's another thing where I just remember like thinking, oh, everything they taught me in school about drugs is wrong because look, I have my own apartment, I go to work every day, and I'm you know, able to experiment with these drugs and it's not automatically a problem, but it's just a phase. You know, if you can, especially with mental health issues, beginning use at such a young age, I was bound to develop a substance use disorder. There was no way I was going to be able to just use, quote, you know, recreationally um, and have that be sustainable. And so by the time I was about 20, I crossed the threshold into addiction. Had you had any, you were working, you had your own flat, but had you any, had any brushes with the law during this period? You were able to keep your head above the parapet, if you say. Yeah, I'm white and I live in a middle class neighborhood. That's the reality. I lived in an under police neighborhood. And also because I was going to work I didn't fit the stereotype of what someone addicted to drugs would look like. I had showered that day. I looked presentable. And so I was mostly avoiding law enforcement contact. But there come a time where the law enforcement made contact. (laughs) That's right. 
uh, my first dress, I was 23 years old and I just got caught red-handed. I was still in my uniform from work, which I find hilarious when I look at my mugshot. And, you know, they just caught me right there with a spoon and a syringe and heroin. I knew I was going to jail. <laughs> when you say they caught you, did they come to your flat because someone had tipped them off that you were using drugs? Or? I was in the parking lot of a bar. So just fairly reckless, used to nobody really paying attention to me. And I wasn't paying attention. And a police officer had walked up to my driver's side door window and was just watching me commit a felony for a minute before he knocked on the window. Was it a crime taking drugs or was it because you were in possession of drugs? It's possession. That's a, that was a felony at the time. And um, what was the consequence of, of that arrest? I was put into drug court, which is billed as like the kinder, gentler alternative to incarceration. If you complete this 18-month intensive program with all these requirements, then you won't get a felony on your record. And I really didn't want a felony because at the time I had been going to college to get my paramedic license. And I knew that if I got that conviction, I would never be able to use the license that I had gone to school for. But how it played out in reality was I tried to comply with all their requirements, but the one that I could not comply with was the one that said, stop doing drugs. And so I kept giving my UAs and they would be positive for heroin. But I, I went to the groups and I went to my check-ins and I did all these other extraneous things, but I did not stop using drugs. Is that because you couldn't stop taking drugs at this point? That's right. Yeah. That was the, I went, you know, when I first agreed to do drug court, I was like, oh, I'm smart. I would never let myself get a felony because that's going to ruin my life. So this is how I'll finally stop using. And I was still profoundly misunderstanding the nature of my own addiction until even facing that consequence, I could not stop. But that is the definition of addiction. It is repeated use despite negative consequences. And I had already, you know, ruined my finances. It had harmed my my performance in college. It had ruined interpersonal relationships. I'd already been experiencing lots of negative consequences and continued using. And then they threw that criminal justice one on top, and I obviously could not stop using. And I ended up going to jail. You you went to jail because you didn't stop using, they kept getting positive results. And so they, what did they do? Withdraw the kind of court order and punish you in a different way? Well, um, it was a sanction. So the first time I went to jail, I actually volunteered. I had been prescribed Suboxone. Through drug court, I had gone to inpatient treatment for 28 days and I'd been prescribed Suboxone. But I'd had a relapse where I was using. And so I presented myself to my drug court check-in with the judge and I have the audio transcript of this. And I asked to be taken into custody and I'm holding my medication in both of my hands. And I asked to be taken into custody because I'm so frustrated with myself. Why can't I make myself stop using? And so I wanted that, that willpower out of the equation. And so I wanted them to take me to jail so that I could become, be stabilized on that medication for that seven-day period and then get out and be able to continue taking it. Um, and so I volunteered for jail. The judge was like, wow, you don't hear that every day. And he, he gave me a seven-day jail detox is what it's called, a jail sanction. But when I got to the jail and I requested my medication when I started to go into withdrawal, they just laughed at me and said that they do not prescribe medications for opioid use disorder at the jail. And so I was made to kick cold turkey and puke into a trash can in an open dorm with 77 other women with fluorescent lights that never turned off and me there in agony, constantly thinking, I chose this. 
I literally volunteered for this and I had never felt so stupid in my, my whole life. And that lasted for seven days mm-hmm. and you were cold turkey kicking about for, for seven days and, and tell me it worked. <laughs> well, first I felt so betrayed because I was raised in a military family. I guess naively I thought the system was there to help us. And so that's why I leaned into it and like requested help through the system. And then I just felt like they kicked me when I was down and it broke my heart. I never took that Suboxone again. I never took the medication again. I was back on heroin as soon as I got out. I went to jail two more times over the next two months and then was finally revoked out of the program after serving about 30 days in jail. And I got two possession of heroin felonies back to back. My license was suspended. I was terminated from my job. I lost my housing, everything. And previously, you said you were able to conduct yourself in terms of your appearance and your behavior on the drugs, had you reached the point where now you were becoming an obvious drug user, where people could see that in your personality, the way you looked, etc.? That's exactly right. When I lost the need to go to work every day, I lost the need to shower or to manage my personal hygiene or appearance. And when I was working, I would make sure I wasn't overly high during my shift, you know, so that I could do my job, just just enough to not be sick. But when I lost that, and when I lost employment, I lost that tether to society that sort of forced me to pretend to be normal, which is a good thing. Like it is a good thing to have to take a shower every day and go to work. And I lost that and I just descended. I, I remember I woke up one day and I thought, when is the last time I took a shower? And I couldn't remember. And the clothes I was wearing were filthy with just cigarette burns in them and just living in filth. And I just didn't care. How did you support your habit at this point? Because when you were working, no doubt you could afford to buy what you needed. But now you're not working. How was you able to support your habit? Well, unfortunately, right around then is when my mom passed of a drug overdose, of a prescription drug overdose. She had military life insurance, and so I had received a large lump sum of cash that I tried desperately to spend as fast as I could on drugs. So that paid for what you needed, and I no doubt people around you were benefiting from that as well, because I, I, I suspect you weren't doing this alone at this point. That's right. Yeah, I had moved into what we would call a trap house, like a, a drug house, because where else was I going to live with two felonies you know, in active addiction? It sounds like there there was a moment when you were talking about being in, incarcerated the, the second and third time round that you were really angry with the system, the system that you leaned on to help you. Do, do you still feel that now as an adult who's come through the other end where I suppose you're putting some blame on the system that should have maybe helped you at a point where you needed help, where they had you captive? Or do you now think, well, it's totally my responsibility and I couldn't do it alone. They didn't help me. Where are you at with that thinking now? Oh, no, I I still feel very angry about this. In April of this year, the Attorney General released a Department of Justice opinion saying that it's a violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act to do to anyone what was done to me. It is now illegal. It is now prohibited in the United States of America. That doesn't mean it's not still happening every day. And in part of my work, what we're doing is identifying facilities that are still doing this to people and then suing them into compliance because it is now illegal. You have to give someone their medication, (laughs) which I can't believe that needs to be said. 
medications for opioid use disorder are the number one evidence-based intervention for opioid, just for addiction. They decrease overdose death rates and they, they literally fight crime. The best crime fighting tool we have is methadone and suboxone. And so just to think that the jail, after I volunteered to go to jail, did not give me gold standard treatment for addiction and instead chose to punish me just for the sake of punishment, I still feel mad about that. And I feel mad about that for everyone who is still experiencing that every single day across this country. Now I fight to try to change that because if the system is still going to exist, if we're still going to lock up people for drug possession, at a minimum, could we perhaps provide them treatment? <laughs> that would be a great start. You, you, you moved past the death of your mother who from an overdose. So she was not someone herself who was addicted to heroin. It was a prescribed drug. You, you, you said she overdosed from something that she's being prescribed from the doctors or from the, the pharmacy. What, what was that drug? Uh, she was prescribed morphine and Vicodin. Isn't morphine a substitute for heroin? Morphine is a precursor to heroin. Some countries use it as a substitute, but not here. Uh, it's, you know, it's just a standard opiate drug, very strong. It's been in use since the 1800s. And she had service-connected disabilities from her time in the military. And so she was on a pretty high load of, of opioids. But And this is where it got dangerous, is she was also prescribed benzodiazepines, Xanax, and Klonopin at the same time. I get my military, I get healthcare now at the VA because I was in the Air Force very briefly. And they have all these signs up. And while I I love that they're doing a better job now. I can't help but think my mom would still be alive had they changed the prescribing guidelines then instead of now. Because today, there's no way that that health system would have ever prescribed her the morphine and the benzodiazepines at the same time, which led to her death. But they realized the error in their ways. They did this, like, they have, like, an AI algorithm that detects people that are at high risk for overdose, and they change their medications um, and so that's great. But it came too late to save my mom. And these are lessons learned through the experience that, that you've gone through and your mother went, went through. Was your mum's passing through an overdose the first? Because I've read that there were a number of people in your life, notwithstanding the case that ended up with you going to prison for a length of time, but that other people in your life had died from an overdose. It seems to have been circulating around you or engulfing you was that the first incident your mother's passing that was the first person incredibly close to me the brother of one of my ex-boyfriends had passed uh, a few years before that and that was the first time anyone in our extended social network had overdosed and that was incredibly shocking i will never forget that but then we went several more years without anyone without hearing of anyone actually dying until my mom passed. And then what happened after your mother? Was was the impact on you enough to push you even further down this spiral of using drugs? So then that suicidality of my past reared its head because you have to think at this time, okay, I'd just gotten two felonies. I'd had all my hopes of becoming a paramedic dashed. My college credits were worthless. I'm unemployed. I found my mom dead from an overdose. I'm very traumatized after having to do CPR. 
and I've been addicted to heroin for five years, that my mom died only having known me as a failure was a feeling that I could not bear. And I decided that I did not want to continue living. And that's where I was. And so I was just doing absolutely insane amounts of heroin, thinking that I should overdose. This should be enough for me to overdose. And I don't have to, to live this life that is so full of suffering anymore. And I would just wake up every time. A few hours later, I just kept waking up. Just kept waking up. I just wouldn't die. And luckily, you know, the heroin was just slightly more convenient than other more certain forms of suicide. And so I just continued using. And were these deliberate attempts on your life or wishful thinking? I don't know what I'm asking here, but it's, it's, you know, how far did you go? There must have been a fear in you because there is a certain amount that you could have taken that would have ended your life. It was like passive suicide, reckless endangerment of my own life because I didn't care whether I lived or died. This is the U.S., so we had access to firearms, and that I know would have done the trick. But I pursued, I just sort of stayed on the reckless endangerment path with heroin because at least you get high from that. What, what happened to you that led to you going to, to prison for a, an extended period of time, Morgan? Yeah, so that I was exactly in the mindset that I just described. Um, my mom had passed. I am recklessly endangering my own life with copious amounts of heroin. Because you have to think before this, I could only buy as much heroin as my tips that day would allow. So I'd, I'd always stayed at about a half gram a day. And all of a sudden, I just have all this money, which means I have unlimited quantities of heroin. And I'd always envisioned, imagined that once I had infinite amounts of heroin, all my problems would go away. And I had it, and all of my problems remained. In fact, just the grief and regret were so heavy on me. And I returned to that point of not really showering, not caring about my life, my personal appearance. And it was then, in that frame of mind, that one of my best friends in the world texted me. And he asked me for a gram of heroin. I wasn't a dealer. I'd never been a dealer at all. Sometimes middleman. But that night, I had a gram to sell him because I was buying six or 12 grams at a time just to simplify my life because I had tens of thousands of dollars in the bank. And so I could sell him a gram. And he came over and I sold him a gram. And he left. And the next day, he texts me again. He asked me for two grams this time. Okay, whatever. I still have enough. But then he asked to deliver it, that, that like I was going to leave my house after not showering for weeks and essentially just like laying on the couch wanting to die. And I was like, no, dude, I'm not delivering it to you. I'm not leaving. Like, if you want it, you got to come over here. That should have been a red flag for me, but I didn't pick up on it. Uh, and a few hours later, my front door burst open and the SWAT team rushed in with rifles pointed at me, screaming at me. And they put me in handcuffs and told me that I was being arrested for the overdose death of Justin DeLong, my best friend in the world. So it was not him that that was texting me. It was the police pretending to be him, essentially using my dead best friend's phone to secure a warrant. That's shocking, really. That is shocking to to hear. I've not seen that detail anywhere. I'd learned uh, uh, what had happened to your best friend uh, uh, and the remorse that you'd shown in, 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 in your involvement. I didn't know that the police had gone that low. 
to try and, I don't know, entrap you or to ensure that they had other charges. What, What were you charged with in the end when you went to court? Drug delivery resulting in death. And that is a charge that carries a 20-year mandatory minimum sentence. I was 24 years old. My mother had just died. Now I was being told in the same breath, I was being told that my best friend was dead and I was being charged with his death as if I had murdered him. And and where was your frame of mind? I know you've talked about the frame of mind you were in up until that point, but given that you were addicted to heroin at this point and and I suppose the for those like myself who's never used heroin and don't know what what impact did it matter to you at this point and by that I mean were you so consumed by the drugs that you were worrying about getting your next hit as opposed to what you were being charged with and everything that had gone on all I could think about was the grief and the loss and I just remember sitting in the back of the cruiser that night with my hands handcuffed behind my back and it's it's this cold day in March and my head's against the glass and I'm thinking, I'm going to be 44 before I get out of prison, 24 years old, and then thinking about his family because I had, he was one of my best friends in the world. I had spent the night at his mom's house countless times. We used to do yard work at his grandmother's. I grew up with his sister. And I just, it, it honestly felt like I was in a nightmare. Like I was just, no, 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 this, this isn't real. Your life can't end twice in rapid succession. I'd already felt like my life had ended when I found my mom dead. This was just weeks later and now this is happening and the SWAT team is here and they're telling me 20 years and Justin is dead. It felt very surreal. Like I was going to wake up. This is a nightmare and you're going to wake up. And it was real. It was happening. He was gone. What was your sentence? I received a plea deal for a lesser charge of conspiracy to distribute heroin. So I was able to escape that 20-year mandatory minimum sentence, again, probably because I am white, and this is the United States, and I was given five years. So you went to prison for five years? It took almost two years uh, to be sentenced. So I did two years in county jail and then two and a half years in federal custody. You'd had a, a taste of what prison was like briefly, but this was a whole different ball game. I'd had a taste of what jail was like, but it's high, it's hugely uncommon to go to federal prison. I'd never known anyone that had went to federal prison. It makes up a, such a small minority of the justice system. And so I'm sitting in county jail with women who are sometimes going to go to prison, but state prison here in Oregon, there is no women's federal prison here in the state of Oregon. So I knew I was going to be transported perhaps across the country, to federal prison. And the only thing I knew about federal prison was having watched the first two seasons of Orange is the New Black. Like, <laughs> so like, that's what I'm envisioning because I have, I have nothing else to even possibly imagine what my experience is going to be. Well, for those who don't know the difference between a county jail, a state jail and a federal jail, because here in the United Kingdom and in most places, they just have penitentiaries or prisons. And it's, you know, depending on the nature of the crime, will dictate whether you go to a sort of high maximum security prison or a medium security prison or an open prison. What what, what does, given what you were saying about the federal prison, what, what does that signify? Because, I mean, it's not like you'd committed murder. It's not like you committed a, a violent act. You 
you know, supplied a friend with some drugs who overdosed, which is bad. You know, let's not pretend that's not bad, but that's the world you, you were in and you didn't deliberately do that. He didn't mean to do what happened to him, etc. Why a federal prison? So that's a great question, and I don't have a great answer for it. Um, federal charges are typically reserved for people who, like, cross state lines. So we don't know which state justice system to put them in, which state prison. Um, but with the war on drugs in the 1980s, they sort of started expanding the federal code. And this was one of those laws, drug-induced, so drug delivery resulting in death is a law on the federal books, but the state of Oregon does not have one. So in the state of Oregon, I would have been convicted of distribution and got a year or two in state prison. That was not seen as sufficient. So they took the very rare step of indicting me federally. Um, so my paperwork read Morgan Godwin versus the United States of America. What was those two and a half years like for you in the federal prison? You'd have thought that after my own experiences going to jail, that any notion I had of living in a fair and just country would have been shattered. But apparently I still retained some of that notion, just enough for them to continuously shatter it every day. <laughs> uh, I wasn't able to earn a single college credit. There were no rehabilitation or education programs available to me. We were able, we were cursed at by the guards. They ran out of tampons and pads at the same time. We were told to plug up with toilet paper. And um, uh, I was sent to the Federal Correctional Institution at Dublin, which is in the Bay Area of California, which meant that I couldn't really get visits. It was too far quite too far. In that prison, it was essentially just total chaos, which worked well for us sometimes because most rules were not enforced most days. Um, so it, it was a little bit of a more laid back environment, but also it meant that there was much higher rates of violence because the, the CO simply just didn't enforce anything. So we had to f work it out amongst ourselves. Relationships were common, but, and I started complaining about this while I was still there, that that there's just that sort of environment of chaos where the guards were able to just do and say anything was very toxic. And they just ignored me. People ignored me. Nobody wants to hear what an inmate has to say. I wrote my senators. I said, there's something very wrong here with the culture. And now, come to find out, this year, FCI Dublin is the sexual abuse capital of the prison system of the federal prison system the warden has been arrested for sex abuse the chaplain has been arrested for sex abuse and three correctional officers have also been arrested the culture was rotten to the core and no one cared and women suffered and you witnessed this firsthand you were there during these periods those from reading the court documents those particular abuse allegations happened in 2020 but things were occurring while I was there as well. In fact, one of the most egregious things I saw was actually a female CO who developed an inappropriate relationship with a friend of mine. And when my friend tried to terminate that relationship, this female correctional officer started stalking her and would follow her around the compound with her arms crossed and just stare. And when she went to do that at her work site, the worksite supervisor came to my friend, the inmate, and said, hey, 
get your girlfriend out of here. Talking about a cop, talking about a CO. And everybody just laughed like, ha 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 ha, that CO is stalking this inmate. Isn't that funny? No, that's not funny. That's the foundation of abuse. But the guards were just able to act with impunity. And I didn't see that manifest as sex abuse personally. I saw it manifest in that stalking thing and some other very inappropriate ways. But I can just see how the fault lines were already laid to then manifest as sex abuse. And it was probably occurring while I was there too. I just didn't see it. I look quite gay, so I wasn't exactly a victim, like a target. What what I find interesting here is that you're talking about a different trajectory already. So you ended up in prison because you were a, a substance abuse user, or, or you, you know, you were addicted to heroin. The, the crime for which you were in prison is related to to drugs. But in this period that you described, you know, Orange is the New Black prison kind of environment and the sexual abuse, what happened to your addiction during this time that you were serving this sentence? That's a great question. So what happened was those two years in county jail. The first year I was in county jail, I continued to use heroin prolifically because there are ample drugs available in jail. There was not in prison, but there was in jail. But it was like using drugs in a laboratory And I was able to make realizations about the nature of my own addiction that I never could in the free world, specifically intellectualization. Like I would choose, choose to use drugs on a Tuesday, but then on a Wednesday, there just simply wasn't any heroin available. It's jail. You don't get to decide when it comes and goes. If there was anything rational about my decision to use, that would have been the end of it. And I would have said, okay, now I'm going to go make a phone call and watch Family Guy and read my book. But that's not what happened. Instead, I just felt myself becoming obsessive and thinking absolutely insane thoughts. Like, I'll I'll shake her down. She looks like she has heroin. And then I would catch myself thinking this and go, oh my God, this isn't rational. This isn't sane. You're not choosing this. Um, This is out of your hands. And so after I'd been in county jail about a year, I went to a check-in with my federal judge. And I told her that that jail had become a threat to my sobriety and I wanted to be moved. And they moved me to a very tiny rural jail um, about an hour away where there was almost no drugs ever. And that is how I first found like recovery and continued sobriety. And even when the United States Marshals tried to sabotage me and put me back in the drug jail a few months later, just that few months of foundation of stability was enough for me to sort of build up the resolve and the self-control to just say no to drugs. And so when I was back in in the drug jail, people knew that I was a drug buyer who had money. And so I would get approached constantly multiple times a day, and I was able to just say no. And the more times I said no, the stronger I felt. Where did you find that no? Because when you talk about the, 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 when you were working at the beginning of your story, when you were working, when you had a purpose beyond the drugs, this is before all the events took place, your mother's death, your best friend's death, other people, you were unable to say no then. But here in this environment where you are most vulnerable and the stress is no doubt and the, the, the pressure on your mental health would have been, I, I suspect at some times, overbearing, but you still found an inner strength at this point in your life, to say no, whereas previously you were unable to say no. What was it, do you think, Morgan? It was the recent memory of using drugs in jail and feeling them take away my rationality and take away my power to to decide and control my actions. It was like essentially using heroin is volunteering 
to become irrational or to become a slave to this substance. And once I had that epiphany, it was much easier to say no, because before I use the drugs, I do have self-control. It is a choice. When I haven't used in months, they come to me, do you want some heroin? That yes, no is a choice. But once I use the heroin, I lose the choice. And then the continued use becomes compulsive. And I learned that by using drugs in jail. So I was able to exercise choice in the only moment I still had it, which was that initial use. Do you want to try this heroin? No. And then that is how I maintain self-control. Did you get any help or support from the authorities? I.e., Did they assist by putting you on any programs or offer you any programs where you could work through these decision-making processes, these important decisions of yes and no? Absolutely not. We were strip searched regularly because they knew we were on drugs. They would bring drug sniffing canine canine dogs through and raid the dorm, make us get naked in front of each other. But that was the closest they came to intervening. You went from being a heavy user of drugs, uh, an an addict, to becoming an advocate. And, and, And that's evident in the way that you talk about your experience now. When you talk, you talk with the caveats of there is a consequence to everything. There are actions based on policies or decisions by the authorities. And that's quite clear in the way you talk about your experience. You know, you haven't shut that off as an experience. There is a connecting, a connection to each of your experiences, i.e. by that I mean the consequences. If something had been done, like with your mother, if they'd done what they should have done, if if the policies that led to you going to prison didn't exist, i.e. you would have been given your medication, the spiral might not have happened. Where does that come from? I mean, clarity comes in retrospect. When I was using, I didn't even know the full scope of interventions that are available to people. But now that I work in public policy, there are peer-reviewed data that shows simply giving people their medications not only reduces their own chance of overdose, but also fights crime. And so I look at this, it's just essentially looking at the data. Anecdotes are not evidence, but then I can apply the actual evidence to the anecdotes that I remember throughout my life story. And it all makes so much sense. I wasn't have these having these one-off unique experiences. These are things that were happening to thousands of people across the country. And so I can sort of look at my story in the first person and then zoom out and look at a much broader narrative that is happening nationwide and all the missed opportunities for intervention. You went into prison, Morgan Godwin, and you came out of prison, Morgan Godwin. But what had changed? When you went in, you were addicted to, to heroin and you went in on the most sad of circumstances, you know, your best friend losing his life as a result of you selling him some, some drugs. But you came out thinking what? Believing what? Wanting to do what? I found a purpose for my life in the injustice of it in those missed opportunities. While I was in prison, more of my friends overdosed and died on heroin. And I dedicated myself in that moment to ensure that no one else needs to die in that way, suffer these preventable deaths. And also just the injustice I witnessed in our justice system. Both of those things just became fuel for my fire. For the first time I recognized my privilege that my middle-class upbringing and a mom who had a master's degree was incredibly rare 
uh, among my peers in prison. And I started applying that privilege um, to good. And I started you know, writing a career in journalism, activism, public policy. And I just finally felt that I'd had what I'd been searching for my whole life was the reason why I am alive. And that I, I do serve some greater purpose. My existence matters in some way to at least some people. And that I should keep fighting the fight. And how have you applied that, Morgan? Because you've come out of prison, and I think it was three or four years ago now, but you've come out of prison. How have you applied that, that found purpose? So I was appointed by the governor to serve on the Alcohol and Drug Policy Commission. I serve on our Public Safety Coordinating Council. I serve on our Drug Decriminalization Council. We have funded $320 million of drug treatment services in the state. Like I, me personally, voted on like $58 million, some unfathomable quantity of money. Um, And I just use my lived experience now compounded with professional expertise because I got out. I worked at Health and Justice Action Lab out of Northeastern University. I study the family of laws that sent me to prison, drug-induced homicide. I'm a frequent public speaker in, in my actual day job with JSTOR Daily. We have a archive of prison newspapers dating all the way back to the 1800s. And I work with incarcerated writers to write stories about them. And so then I'm really trying to bridge the gap. So when people get out of prison, especially if they were able to do some education in prison, bridging that cultural chasm and bringing them into the white collar workforce. And how easy is that? Because all the stories we hear in the United Kingdom and all the campaigning that takes place is that the the understanding is that when you've got a criminal conviction in America, you you know, you're barred from voting, you're barred from getting most jobs or or, or even kind of reintegrating back into society. But it sounds like that you've overcome all of those hurdles or have you? And has it been a challenge since you came out of prison, despite the successes in terms of the work that you just mentioned? Yeah, it's a never-ending challenge. I'm very fortunate that I live in Oregon, which is a progressive state, which has done away with several of the collateral consequences. So I can vote. I could vote from the day I was released. If I lived in another state, that would not be true. And then the jobs thing, that is a problem. You will get denied for jobs because of your criminal record. But I decided to build an entire professional career around centering around the fact that I have been to prison. (laughs) Like I'm not hiding it. I am leading with the fact that I have been to prison. There are weird collateral consequences that still haunt me. I was just denied entrance into the United Kingdom and a few other weird things like Airbnb wouldn't let me rent from them. Uh, I couldn't hire a babysitter off of care.com all because, you know, I used drugs 10 years ago. It's just odd, but I just want to, especially in this country, we're told that if you have a felony, your life is over, and it's not true. It's harder, it's trickier, and you are going to spend the rest of your life fighting. But many of these obstacles are surmountable. And and your testimony to that, and I'm glad you said that, actually, because it is one of our biggest challenges, trying to convince people that they need to, well, I say convince people, but encourage people who have criminal convictions or have been to prison to embrace that as part of their moving forward um, not suggesting they'd be proud of it or not proud of it but just embracing it for what it is and if people don't accept them for who they are as a result of their lived experience then they're probably not worth giving the time of day I also read that you have had a love of hip-hop music and that whole scene your entire life watching you listening to you 
I wouldn't have connected that with you. So where does that connection come from? I mean, I don't know. Everybody in my neighborhood, we grew up listening to hip hop. And then I got into specifically like one niche of underground hip hop. Um, I loved atmosphere. I have like atmosphere lyrics tattooed on me. I was just a super fan. And then as a journalist, I helped out with an issue. There was some men in Michigan prison who were upset because the atmosphere music was taken away from their prison music service and they wanted to know why. And so I did some investigating and I found out it was because the record label did not consent to the prison profiteering that was occurring there. Um, They didn't want this third party vendor to make dirty money off of their music. So they had pulled it. And because of that, I had sort of a an opening, a communication opening with Slug of Atmosphere. And when DMX, the rapper, died of an overdose, I just slid into the DMs and said, hey, man, do you want to do something about this? And he was like, what What does that mean? And we developed a first-of-its-kind touring overdose prevention program. And I was able to essentially tour with my favorite rapper, go to all these different cities and states, passing out naloxone, the antidote for opioid overdose, fentanyl testing strips so people could check their drugs, their cocaine, what have you, and stay alive. And we reached almost a quarter million people and had documented overdose reversals, all because I'm a little hip-hop head. <laughs> well, I mean, that's where it started, didn't it? Your yeah. love of this particular yeah. band atmosphere, and then you're connected with them making a huge difference because it's not just people who end up in prison. It's people who attend these festivals and these concerts, right, who are taking drugs, who are overdosing. It's not, and that's the disconnect, isn't it? People think that heroin addiction, drug addiction, drug abuse, alcohol abuse is all about incarceration, but it's not. It's happening in the, the ordinary world as well, I say, the world outside of incarceration among ordinary people as, as well. Yeah, especially now with fentanyl, infiltrating the entire drug supply, people are using what was once considered safe substances and are dying of fentanyl overdoses from cocaine. There's all these counterfeit pills. People take what they think is a Xanax and it's actually fentanyl and they end up dead. And that's incredibly tragic. And so now I have dedicated my life to fighting against that and trying to raise awareness, mostly through that my nonprofit Beats Overdose, where we go to hip hop shows and just connect with people and try to keep people safe. And, and how do you do that? So, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think of it practical. You go into this event, you've got a few drugs in your pocket, you're attending, you're waiting for the bands to get up on stage. How do you hit those people who need to hear what you have to say or show? Yeah, we have a booth set up. It, changes depending on the venue and we'll have you know hundreds of doses of naloxone and hundreds of fentanyl test strips and during his set from the microphone slug pauses and does an interlude and talks about overdose prevention naloxone and fentanyl test strips points over to me at the booth or I don't staff every show myself I pull local volunteers from the community because community to community is best and he just sort of points over towards the booth and then people self-select and who, who needs it, they know, and they rush over to the booth to grab the supplies, get trained on overdose reversals, overdose prevention, how to use fentanyl test strips. And I get DMs days, weeks, or even months later, you know, thanking Beats Overdose or the volunteers because someone's life was saved. And, and just so that I understand it, this is somebody at a festival or at a gig who has taken drugs, they feel that they're overdosing, or they know someone who's taken a drug. No, 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 that's not. No, no it's for, it's, uh, this has happened. We've reversed overdose at the shows. But we are using concerts and festivals 
for community naloxone distribution. So not necessarily just what's happening that moment at the concert, but using that to get naloxone into the communities for the after party, for the next day, for the weeks after, because historically naloxone was mostly distributed through syringe service programs, needle exchanges, because overdose was mostly concentrated around people who inject drugs. That is no longer the case. Fentanyl has completely changed the game. And so we are pivoting and we're looking for any place where thousands of people congregate, where a perhaps slightly elevated percentage of them use drugs, maybe not then and there, but use drugs in an average month and trying to get them the supplies they need to stay safe. Excellent work. And what else are you doing? What, what else should people who are listening to this be aware of? You talk about your, your nonprofit, which is what you've just described. What, what else are you doing? Because I read that you've been, you know, involved in a lot of stuff. I mean, you talked about the policy work and the work that you're doing to try and encourage others to make sure that they do things that prevent people like yourself ending up in the environments that, that you did. What, what's most important to you beyond that? If uh, well, I'm thinking of uh, World's Toughest Prison Women's Edition. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, that's a doable. <laughs> <laughs> no, but really, it would be cool. Mostly that. So I just focus at the, the intersection of the criminal justice system and substance use disorder. But I also work a lot with higher education in prison, trying to get people the access um, to college that they need inside and then bridging that gap so they can finish their degree upon release, getting them um, a good job that provides them the economic mobility and security that they need to never go back to prison, always focusing on overdose prevention and just trying to save lives and improve the quality of life for people out here in the only ways I know how. And and you know what, it's so important, and I say that because I've been working in the criminal justice system, Morgan, in various ways to do crime, criminal justice, prisons for, for 20 years, but I've never spoken to anyone thinking about it. I've never spoken to anyone who's doing what you do. I've never spoken to anyone who is working in this, trying to reduce the overdose, kind of, um, you know, trying to balance things out, trying to save people's lives that can be saved, that the authorities should be doing. So, so a big, big round of applause to you for the work that you are doing, and you, you know, I hope that the work that you're doing is being picked up by others in other countries here in the United Kingdom and in other places around the world where drugs are leading to people losing their lives when it shouldn't. You, you, you know, you can't stop, if you can't stop people using drugs, you've got to do something to help manage the, the, the death that can be caused by, by drugs. So I hope that, that you are getting the support of people hearing what you're doing in other countries. Are they? I suppose that's the question. Are they? Um, I've connected with some folks in Germany, but the fentanyl epidemic is still fairly confined to the United States, although it probably is on the horizon for Europe, unfortunately, especially since the Taliban has retaken Afghanistan and cracked down on poppy production. And so I always welcome international connections. Um, I was in Portugal this summer learning about their system of drug decriminalization and drug treatment provision. They do The way they do methadone is just fantastic. And I really hope that the United States can move towards that way. There's so much to be learned through international connections. And how can people who are interested in the work that you're doing see more of the work that you're doing? Where would you point them to? Yeah, morgangodvin.com, my website. You can reach me there. Or if you want to look at just the nonprofit, just the work we're doing with overdose prevention, that's beatsoverdose.com. And I'm 
pretty active on Twitter, at Morgan Godwin. Well, there you go, everybody. You've heard it straight from Morgan. Morgan, thank you so much for sharing yeah. your story. And it's, it's, it's so good. And you should be so proud of yourself to go and get to where you've got to. And you're still very young and probably have a lot of, lot of work still to do. But hopefully not. Hopefully that the work you've done already not just on yourself, but for the people that you are doing it for as a result of of your lived experiences, it is making a difference and will continue to make a difference. So thank you so much for sharing your story. I hope so. Thank you, Raphael. Please share this episode with your friends, family and colleagues and follow the show for updates about new episodes by just clicking on subscribe. Your support really matters. You can also be a part of this podcast by rating and reviewing what you've heard and tell us what you think. More importantly, tell others what you think by leaving some comments and feedback. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy Second Chance Podcast. Audio editing is by Audio Avalanche. The original music is by J-Row Productions. The cover design work is by Studio Minerva, our social media creator, is Sophie Warner. This episode was produced by Kim Collicott at Second Chance Podcast and me, your host, Raphael Rowe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.